Hello and welcome back to another episode of the It's a Crime O'Clock Somewhere podcast. This is episode 78. Today I'll be talking about the murder of Miguel Mike Barajas. My sources for today's episode are Snapped, Season 21, Episode 3, Gazette.com, DenverPost.com, KDVR.com, WashingtonTimes.com, and KRDO.com. As usual, all of my sources will be linked in today's show notes. Sandra Siegel was a struggling single mom when she met Mike Barajas. He caught her eye, and one thing led to another. They ended up getting married. Together, they built a comfortable life for Sandra's two daughters. He raised them. He gave them everything that they needed. Even if it meant letting them move back in as adults. I don't think there was more than a year when they had the house to themselves. They seemed to be happy, just like any typical American family. But after almost 30 years together, Sandra and Mike's marriage would come to a tragic end. On February 13, 2013, the Colorado Springs, Colorado police received a 911 call around 7 p.m. The caller, Don Richburg, had called about a burglary in progress. Our front door is open if the front room is all messed up. The call came in as a burglary in progress. The caller was 33-year-old Don Richburg. Do you think that someone broke into your house? It does look like it. Dawn said that her stepdad, Mike, was supposed to be home, but when she called out to him, she got no response. Dawn walked to her parents' bedroom but saw that all the bedding had been pushed off the bed. Dawn was ordered out of the house because the police didn't know if someone was still inside. They arrived a few minutes later. The scene did suggest a robbery, but there were items thrown all around the house. They also noticed that there was some spray painting throughout the house, and it looked like gang graffiti. In the bedroom, blankets were all over the floor, and everything was in disarray. On closer inspection, the police saw a shoe and pant leg sticking out from the bedding. It was Mike, and he was deceased. He was cold, and it looked like if he looked like he had been dead for a while. Mike's wife, Sandra, arrived soon after. She was told about Mike, and she collapsed. She was devastated. Sandra was born in 1960 and spent her early days in El Paso, Texas. She was direct, blunt, and honest. Sandra got married almost right after graduation and gave birth to Dawn in 1979. She then went on to have another daughter, but the marriage didn't work out. In her 20s, Sandra worked at a convenience store, and that was where she met Mike. Mike was born in 1965. He was the oldest of four boys and grew up in a military family. They moved a lot, and Mike looked after his siblings. In 1983, Mike joined the Army. After he graduated from boot camp, he went to Fort Bliss in Texas, and that's where he met Sandra. He would stop at a gas station every morning to fill his car or get a drink. Sandra and Mike got married after a year of dating. Mike moved off base and they got an apartment together. He was now also a stepfather to two girls under the age of six. In 1987, Mike left the army to be able to spend more time with his new family. He then got a job as a security guard and Sandra worked odd jobs. Mike's entire family lived out in Colorado Springs. He, Sandra, and the kids were always visiting during the holidays, but Mike longed to live close to them. In 1996, Mike's brother Greg offered him a job at a car dealership in Colorado Springs, and Mike moved right away, while Sandra and the kids packed up to join him. Mike was ecstatic, but Sandra wasn't. She'd be further away from her family, and the girls were now teenagers and weren't that happy either. They seemed to settle in, though. Mike was also making more money and was very hardworking. 
Mike was also very involved in his church. He worked as an usher during Saturday night masses, and on Sunday after mass, he would serve breakfast. Sandra had her own ways of socializing. She'd often go to the casino and gamble. More on that later. By 2013, they still seemed very devoted to each other. Dawn was now 33, but still lived with them after several failed relationships. Sandra's youngest daughter also lived with them, but Mike was very generous. And now brings us back to February 13th, 2013. Mike had been shot several times with a handgun. The window downstairs had appeared to have been broken from the outside. Colorado Springs did have quite a few burglaries around the time. And the graffiti around the house read, You got Jack Fool and WS13. 13 usually meant a Hispanic gang. The police interviewed Dawn, who called 911. Dawn said she and her mom had taken her sister to the hospital earlier in the day, and they were caught on surveillance camera. They returned home just a few minutes before she called 911. She entered the home and called out to Mike to tell him she was home. He didn't answer, which was not usual. Mike was always there. Dawn's demeanor was very flat and not emotional, which the police caught on to right away, whereas Sandra completely broke down. The police also spoke to Chris and Greg, Mike's brothers. Chris said he called his brother around 6 p.m. just an hour before Don called 911. He called his house phone. Someone answered, but it wasn't Mike. The person said he must have been in the shower. Chris said he didn't think much of it at the time, and he didn't ask because he knew Don had men hang around the house. There was a man hanging around the neighborhood after the police arrived at the Barajas' home. It was suspicious to Greg and Chris. They said he didn't have a jacket on despite it being freezing. He had a t-shirt on and shorts. The man was also asking for a ride. Chris and Greg asked who he was, and the man said he was friends with Dawn and her sister. The police asked Greg if Mike had any enemies, and he said his stepdaughter and her friends. The issues between Mike and Dawn had started while she was a teenager. She got into trouble and had issues in school. Mike tried to discipline her. Dawn barely graduated, but after she did, she was chasing after men and began doing drugs. Dawn moved in with her mom and stepdad shortly before Mike's death. She had been living with a guy, but he died of a drug overdose. Mike was willing to help Dawn, but she didn't try to get a job or move out on her own. Dawn was interviewed at the police station, but they didn't mention right away that she was being looked at as a suspect. Dawn, I am sorry for your loss tonight. I know it's tough. Dawn replied by claiming to have a good relationship with her stepfather. We have good. I mean, we don't we don't talk every single day, you know, or don't like hug them every single day, but we joke around a lot. It was precisely the opening the investigators had been waiting for. Be a little bit different story. But on the spot, Dawn insisted that her relationship with Mike had been good. He even told you he helped me buy a car. So. Dawn did admit that she had been arrested before because of drugs. She said she didn't do anything and had nothing to hide. Her demeanor led them to believe she was involved or knew more. But they did have to let her go. Before she left, the police gave her a warning. Tell the truth before someone else does. Greg and Chris believed that Dawn and her friends had robbed the place. The police contacted a local cab company because the mysterious man had been asking for a ride. They asked if there had been any pickups in the area on February 13th. There had been a request at an area right outside the residence away from the police presence. 
The police looked into a cell phone that had been used to make the call, and the call was made by Tommy Wright, who was 34 years old. The police interviewed Sandra and asked her if Mike and Tommy had any connection. Have you ever heard the name Tommy? I heard the name. Mentioned by your daughters? I heard the name, but I don't know who he is. Though Sandra said she thought Tommy had been to the Barajas house. He's only come over the house once and that was in December. Yeah, I mean, unless he's been there, you know, when we weren't there, but I only remember him coming over like one time. On February 20th, the police finally tracked Tommy down. The police received a call from the Springfield Police Department. Tommy had been picked up for an unrelated crime for stealing a car and car theft charges. The police drove about three hours to Springfield, but Tommy wasn't very cooperative. The police were able to obtain a, a search warrant for Tommy's car and apartment where he had been staying, and inside, a 45 caliber handgun was found. The gun was sent to the crime lab, and the bullets from Mike's body were compared to the ones from the firearm. It was the murder weapon, and it had actually been taken from Mike. On May 17, 2013, Sandra and her daughters were struggling without Mike. Before Tommy was officially indicted on murder charges, he wanted to confess and tell the whole truth. He admitted that he had been the one who fired the gun. He took two steps forward to bed. That's when I stood up and shot but just when the investigators figured they had everything they needed to convict Tommy of murder, his confession took an unexpected turn. Tommy reveals that this wasn't a break-in after all. It was a murder plot. Tommy said it was a murder plot planned by him, Don, and Sandra. Sandra was never a person of interest and had appeared to have been distraught. Tommy said he met Sandra through her daughters. He met the daughters at a convenience store in Colorado Springs. He said he flirted with them and he spent time with them at the Barajas residence. He said they partied and did drugs. Sandra had made him an offer to kill Mike, and Tommy said they offered him $5,000. Sandra also told Tommy that Mike had been inappropriate with Don's sister. Tommy said they agreed on it, and they spoke about how to stage it as a burglary and use spray paint on the walls. They wanted to make it look like it was a gang member who committed it. Tommy said that Don and Sandra took the other daughter to the hospital for their alibi. The gun was from Mike's gun cabinet. Mike entered the house around 6 p.m. and Tommy was crouched down near Mike's bed when Mike entered the room. Tommy answered the phone to Chris thinking it was Sandra or Don and Tommy said he panicked, left the house, and hid in a drainage ditch. Tommy then went back to the house and asked several people for a ride. He then called a cab when no one would give him a ride. The police asked Tommy to place a call to Sandra to talk about the murder. Hey, Don. Yeah. Who was that? It was Tommy. Hello, what's up? It's clear from the first words of that phone call that Don is A, not thrilled to hear from Tommy, and B, very concerned that this person would be reaching out to her. But Tommy pushed on, regardless. Let me talk to your mom, because she kind of she owes me big time. You guys all owe me big time. Don didn't deny it. And when she put her mother on the phone, Tommy quickly got her to admit even more. I told you I'd take his ass out, and I did, did I not? And if I'm saying that, that would be stupid of me to say if somebody was. It turns out that Sandra didn't have the $5,000, but offered $500. Sandra agreed to meet Tommy at a Walmart on the north end of town. Sandra was stopped by the police and arrested. Don was also arrested at the Barajas' home. On February 4th, 2014, Sandra went on trial.
There was never any evidence that Mike was sexually abusing his stepdaughter. The prosecution said Sandra's motive was her gambling problem and the fact that she wanted money. Due to her gambling issue, Jimmy, Mike's brother, believed that Mike was ready to divorce Sandra. The prosecution said Sandra didn't have a job, so she needed Mike in her life. They knew Mike had life insurance of about $750,000. Mike also had accidental death through his work that Sandra would receive if he died. He was obviously worth more dead than alive to her. Sandra manipulated her daughter and Tommy, who were addicted to meth. Tommy was the prosecution's star witness. The police said they made a deal with the devil. At trial, when he was testifying, Tommy was smirking and very nonchalant about his testimony. The prosecution did have the tapes of Tommy's phone call with Sandra admitted to her part. The defense argued that Sandra was innocent. Sandra said it was Tommy and Don that were responsible. She basically blamed everything on Don and that she would do anything to get drugs. The defense claimed that Sandra was arrested trying to pay for the murder because Don had manipulated her into doing it. On February 21st, 2014, the jury came back with a verdict after two and a half days of deliberation. Sandra was found guilty of first-degree murder. She was shocked. In Colorado, the sentence for first-degree murder is life without parole. Dawn made a deal. She pled guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to 45 years. Tommy also pled guilty to second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to 40 years. I lay awake night thinking our brother died senselessly. He was a good father, husband, just all the way around a good man. It's clear that Sandra believed that Mike was going to leave her and that she was going to lose everything. Dawn was manipulated by her mom, and Tommy was manipulated by them as well. However, Dawn and Tommy were clearly addicted to drugs and would have done anything for money, and it's sad that Mike, who was innocent, lost his life for no reason. My book recommendation for this week is Roll Red Roll by Nancy Schwartzman. In football-obsessed Steubenville, Ohio, on a summer night in 2012, a 16-year-old girl was repeat repeatedly assaulted by members of the Big Red High School football team. They took turns documenting the crime and sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. The victim, Jane Doe, learned the details via social media at a time when teens didn't yet understand the lasting trail of their digital breadcrumbs. Crime blogger Alexandria Goddard, along with hacker collective Anonymous, exposed the photos, tweets, and videos, making this the first rape case ever to go viral and ca catapulting Steubenville onto the national stage. I'm going to be honest, this book was very hard to get through. The book is told from the beginning to what happened in 2012, and it goes into depth about key players, including the two players who went on trial, the football coach, and even the town itself. I believe that many people involved today still blame the victim. Many parents even blame the victim because they were afraid that their beloved football team and town would be tarnished, and it's sickening. I truly hope Jane Doe is getting the help she needs and is moving on with her life. My heart goes out to her and her family and the town of Steubenville needs to reevaluate their lives ASAP. I give this book a 9 out of 10 because it's very well done, but it's probably one of the hardest books and cases I've learned about. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. I'd love to know what you think. Please subscribe to my blog, follow me on Instagram and Twitter, email me, buy me a coffee, and leave me a 5-star rating or review. I'll be back next week with an all-new case and book recommendation. And remember, it's crime o'clock somewhere.